special and genuine kind of love and care and kindness. People who seem to regard the whole world with this feeling of love and compassion. People that come to mind in this regard, you know, over the years we've mentioned often our teacher Deepama, a woman from Calcutta, a person like the Dalai Lama, you know, who in so many different circumstances in very difficult situations never seemed to waver from that place of loving kindness, of loving care. And these are two who are just, you know, prominent. There are many people like this who we may have come in contact with. With Deepama and the Dalai Lama and people like that, there's really a very profound understanding of suffering. Nature, the depth of suffering in the world, a profound understanding of emptiness, of selflessness, of egolessness. And in both a very universal and unconditional kind of love. Deepama was the kind of person who was always blessing, like that was her mode of being. <laughs> wherever she went, whoever she met, often physically, physical gestures of blessing, but also in her heart, be happy, be happy, be happy, be happy, may you be happy. And it was wonderful to be in her presence. It's, it was really worth going all the way to Calcutta to just have her place her hands on your head. Blessing. It was such an incredible feeling of being loved unconditionally. Just somebody wishing you well, completely and totally and unconditionally. It's a very extraordinary feeling to be on the receiving end. It must be even more extraordinary to have that capacity to offer that. You know, with people like the Dalai Lama and others like him, often you have the feeling when you're with him that you are the most important person in the world. That's the level of attention. That's the level of connection. That's the level of his being present. And it's not that at those times we're the most important person in the world because of a position or a title or what we do. It comes simply from the fact that we are, that we're fellow human beings. They have this amazing capacity to connect. There's a wonderful story of the Dalai Lama. Uh, some years ago there was a conference in Arizona where he was giving teachings. And they were staying in, you know, one of the big hotels. And before he left, you know, after the teaching of the conference was over, he asked the management to gather all of the staff of the hotel. 
you know, the people who made up the rooms and the waiters and the room service people and the kitchen people and the whole staff of the hotel. They lined up, you know, before the, uh, the entrance. And one by one, the Dalai Lama went down the line be happy or something like that. I think how, how extraordinary to have that feeling about everyone. This is the special quality. This is the special feeling of metta. You know, as Sharon mentioned last night, metta is the Pali word for loving kindness or loving care. And it's really the feeling which emanates from a great generosity of the heart. And it's expressed in a very simple wish. May you be happy. May I be happy. May you be happy. May everyone be happy. So it's an offering. It's just an offering of our hearts in the most simple way, in the most direct way, in the most connecting way. And what's so unique about this feeling, and in some way what makes it so rare in our lives, is that in this generosity of the heart, this simple wish, may you be happy, it's not seeking anything back. It's not seeking any self-benefit. And that's what constitutes the very great purity of metta. We're not doing it for something. We're not doing it for some gain, for some benefit to ourselves, although benefits come from the beauty of the feeling. But that's not the motive, not the motivation behind the expression of this wish. The simple wish, the simple expression, may you be happy, may all beings be happy. There's nothing unwholesome associated with this state. You know, in so many of our normal states of mind, there can be a mixture of some parts wholesome, some unwholesome. With matter, there's nothing unwholesome, there's nothing harmful in that. No one is ever harmed through the feeling of matter. I'd just like to read to you briefly uh, the Buddha's words on this. It comes from the Metta Sutta. And it's just a very clear expression of the teaching of the practice of the feeling. It's really what we're doing here. This is what he said about the practice of Metta. May all living things be happy and at their ease. May they be joyous and live in safety. All beings, whether weak or strong, omitting none, in high, middle, or low realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far away, born or yet to be born, may all beings be happy and at their ease. Let none deceive another, nor despise any being in any state. 
Let none by anger or ill will wish harm to another. Even as a mother watches over and protects her only child, so with a boundless mind should one cherish all living beings. Radiating friendliness over the entire world, above, below, and all around without limit. So let one cultivate a boundless goodwill toward the entire world, free from ill will and enmity. So this is our practice. This is actually why we've come together, to learn to recognize, to access, to cultivate this boundless quality of goodwill, of friendliness. The feeling of metta, of loving-kindness, as it's practiced, has the wonderful effect of softening our hearts and minds. It really begins to make our mind very pliable, less reactive to disturbance. And because of this, because of this greater pliability, greater spaciousness in the heart and mind, we can see how metta becomes the ground of wisdom. When we're less reactive, when there's more inner space, then it's much easier to see with discriminating wisdom what is skillful, what is unskillful. What leads to happiness, what leads to suffering for ourselves or others. We're not so completely caught up in the habits, the habituated reactions of our mind. Because there's greater discrimination possible, greater wise discrimination about our mind states, about our actions, about our choices, we begin to choose more wisely, choose those things which contribute to the happiness of ourselves or others. As we make wiser choices, we become happier. As we become happier, we rest more easily in loving-kindness. And so it's this great spiral upward towards more and more well-being, greater and greater sense of ease and harmony. The beauty of the Buddha's teachings about loving-kindness and about everything else is that it's not simply a description of a state that we should admire. You know, this wonderful description of universal, boundless loving-kindness, friendliness towards all beings. That's a good idea. That's not what the Buddha was suggesting or inviting us to do. It's all about a practice. It's all about recognizing the power of this state and seeing that we can cultivate it in ourselves, just as people like Deepa Mala, the Dalai Lama, or many, many others, have done in their lives. This is something we can do. This is something we can practice. And it's really why we've gathered here. Thich Nhat Hanh had a wonderful little statement about this. He said, practicing Buddhism 
is a clever way to enjoy life. <laughs> Happiness is available. Please help yourself to it. It's wonderful to see this, to see that, yes, happiness is available. We can help ourselves to it if we know the way, if we know what to do, what to practice. But as with all of these practices and understandings, it doesn't come without difficulty. As you probably experienced just this first day of practice. We may recognize very clearly the beauty and the purity and the power of genuine loving feeling, genuine loving kindness. That's not so hard to understand. This is not a great subtlety. Not to see that, yes, love is a good idea. So we may recognize that, but still many times in our lives, and in many different kinds of situations, we may find that we're not so loving that our minds and our hearts are not open and not spacious. So what's happening then? I mean, it's clearly a more painful state to be closed, to be contracted. What's happening? Why do we get caught in those states? How can we understand what's going on? The Buddha spoke with such clarity about this, you know, and it's so characteristic of all the teachings, this very clear understanding of how the heart-mind works and how we get entangled in things that cause suffering to ourselves, to other people. There are two strong forces in the mind, deeply conditioned, deeply habituated, which obscure and obstruct this loving energy. So we need to see them, we need to understand what they are. What are the forces which obscure love, which obstruct love in our lives? Because when we understand them, it actually becomes workable. We can see through them and come to that place of what Sylvia called that natural resting place of loving-kindness within us. The first of the obscuring forces is what the Buddha called the near enemy of metta. That's an interesting terminology. This term, the near enemy of something, refers to states of mind which look like wholesome states, they come disguised as wholesome states, like metta, but actually are not, actually are unskillful. So what is the near enemy of metta? What comes and deceives us into thinking, oh yes, this is love. This is loving kindness. The near enemy of metta is desire, is attachment. Metta is a gift of loving feeling. 
Desire is an energy of wanting. Wanting fulfillment, wanting acceptance, perhaps wanting to be loved. But still, it's the energy of wanting, which is coming in. The energy of metta is an act of generosity, which is going out. When desire or wanting or attachment comes masquerading as metta in our lives, it's very confusing. And it really has caused a lot of confusion in our lives, in our relationships. And it's confusing because of their similarities. In both loving-kindness and desire, there's a going towards the object. There's a kind of affinity, an energy leaning towards the object. And in both desire and metta, there can be great delight. You know, often when we're acting out a desire or fulfilling a desire, there can be a lot of pleasure in that, a lot of delight. And so, oh, this is really just like love. But when it's the feeling of metta, when we're going towards a person or a situation with metta, we're going toward them not from wanting anything back, but really with the very simple expression of the wish, of the feeling, may you be happy. It's not wanting anything. It's not desiring anything. It's not attached to anything. In different situations, both in our meditation practice and in our lives, this distinction between desire and attachment on the one hand and metta or loving-kindness on the other becomes very clear. When you're doing the phrases, you know, may I or may you be happy, be healthy, may you live in safety, may you live with ease. In metta we're using each expression, each phrase, as a simple expression of goodwill. Be happy, be healthy. But it gets confused with desire or wanting when we bring into the practice this assessment, which is quite common, of how we're doing. You know, I've done the phrases. How am I doing now? Am I feeling more love? You know, it's an evaluation of what we are getting from it. And it reminded me, as I did the metta practice, and I saw this arise a lot, and I would be doing a round of phrases or two, and then kind of step back and look. You know, okay, what's happening? And it reminded me of my first and only and disastrous career in gardening, which happened when I was about eight years old or nine years old. And I was this little kid planting a garden, and things started to grow, 
and I was playing with carrots and I got really excited as you know, started to come up. And just as soon as things started to come up, I pulled them out to see how they were doing. <laughs> it's not a very good way to garden. That's what my metta practice reminded me of at times. You know, before I learned about how desire or wanting can co-opt the practice. We start with the intention to simply express goodwill and good wishes. And if we're not careful, if we don't notice what our minds are doing, it gets turned into a wanting of something for ourselves. And it's not that it's wrong that that happens. It is going to happen most likely at different times. But we want to see it clearly so we don't confuse that with the feeling of metta. So we really see what the difference is. It's very easy to fall into the meditation trap of being more concerned with how we're doing in the practice than in the simple expression of a good wish. So it's something we need to stay tuned to. I did one totally crazy thing in my practice of metta in this regard. When I look back at it, I can hardly believe that I did it. I got it into my head that I don't even know what was in my head. <laughs> that if I said the phrases fast enough, <laughs> somehow the practice would take off. <laughs> so I spent some number of days racing through the phrases, just saying them as fast as I could say them in my mind. <laughs> I really gave myself a very bad headache. <laughs> I mean, not only was it totally pointless, but it was really rooted in that sense, of, in the sense of very misguided understanding of what can I get from this, you know, and not seeing that that's what was going on. And so it obscured, it obstructed the more genuine feeling of metta, of a simple good wish. That's what we're doing. We're not practicing in order to get something. Things will happen. Things do come from the practice. So it's not to deny the beneficial consequences because they're there. But the motivation, the purity of the motivation that we need to cultivate is not for what we get, but to remind ourselves to come back to that place of it's a simple good wish for the well-being, for the happiness, of ourselves, of others. So this distinction is very important for us to see. Otherwise, at times we may be practicing not metta, but the near enemy of metta, something that looks like it, that's close to it, of wanting, of desire, of attachment, but not really it. There are other situations, I and mean, this arises in the meditation practice itself, but this confusion of love and desire often arises in our lives, in our intimate and interpersonal relationships. Now, how often do these two feelings 
get intertwined of genuine loving kindness, loving care, this generosity of the heart, and a desire, a wanting, a holding, an attachment. Most of our interpersonal relationships are an entanglement of these two very different feelings. And because we don't see the difference clearly, or we haven't examined in ourselves, in our own experience, what the difference is, it has some very distressing consequences. And just in, in so much of kind of popular music, it's all about this confusion. You know, I want you, I need you, I love you. As if somehow they're all the same thing. We can look at consequences as a way of understanding the difference between these two mindsets, between these two feelings, the feeling of loving-kindness, of metta, and the feeling of desire or attachment. Where does fear come from in our lives? Where does the feeling of possessiveness come from? Where does the feeling of insecurity come from? Which of these states is the basis for our projections and subsequent disappointments? Do fear, the fear, insecurity, possessiveness, projection and disappointment, do these come from metta or from desire? We look to see, it's very clear. Fear and insecurity does not come from the generosity of the heart, from a feeling of metta, from a feeling of goodwill. What follows from that state is a happiness, is a peace, is a contentment. We can see this, and we need to see it very clearly for ourselves. One of the reasons that we begin the metta practice starting with a benefactor is that we want to take someone for whom there is a very uncomplicated loving feeling. See, the Buddha didn't say start with somebody that you have this very intimate, close relationship with in, in an interpersonal way. And that comes later in the sequence. But we don't start there because it's too easy to confuse these states of metta and desire. With a benefactor, we want to find somebody who's done good things for us, who's helped us, but with whom our relationship is very uncomplicated. Because with that kind of person, it becomes easy to actually hone in on the purity of the metta feeling. Just that wish, may you be happy, may you be well, may you be safe. Not wanting anything back. So 
So sometimes we confuse metta and desire. Sometimes we pretend metta. It's not so much of a confusion, but we're deceiving ourselves. And I had this experience some years ago, which was a great lesson to me. I was out visiting friends in western Massachusetts. They lived out really in the middle of the woods, and I was just walking down this road, and there were a few houses uh, on the road. And I was walking alone, and as I passed by this one house, there was this very uh, aggressive-sounding dog. It was a pretty little dog. And it's barking away, and so as I'm walking, by, be happy, be happy, be happy, be happy. And it came over and bit me. <laughs> and I thought, hmm, so much for the power of metta. But on reflection, that was a pretend metta. I wasn't actually feeling metta for the dog. I was saying, be happy, but go away. Be happy, stay over there. And so it really takes a great honesty with ourselves, you know, and just to begin to separate out, to distinguish, okay, is there really a genuine feeling of goodwill, or are we just using the phrases with some other motivation? I once told this story some time ago, and somebody sent me, I think as a kind of consolation prize, a newspaper clipping of uh, Mother Teresa in Calcutta who had bent over to pet a dog outside of her mission and the dog bit her and she needed all these rabies shots <laughs> so that they were trying to make me feel better. One of the things that gives the feeling of metta its great inclusive power, its great expansive power, is that it has the ability to include all beings in its scope. So it's very interesting to contrast this with the feeling of desire. We may have desire for one person, or two people, or three people, maybe serially, maybe together in different combinations, but I don't think there's anybody here who has the capacity to desire every being in the world. <laughs> it's like desire doesn't have that capacity. Of necessity, desire is limited. And what makes metta, what makes loving-kindness and all the Brahma-viharas so extraordinary in terms of the range of feelings and mind states that we can experience is precisely this quality or characteristic. Metta has the capacity 
to contain all beings. It's boundless in that sense. We could have the wish, and we will cultivate it over time, may all beings be happy. There's nothing which limits us in the expression of our goodwill. That's a very unusual state of mind, state of being. And unlike desire, unlike attachment, unlike the feeling of craving or wanting, metta does not easily turn into ill will. It doesn't easily turn into ill will because it is not dependent on conditions. It's not dependent on people being a certain way. That's what's meant when it said this is an unconditioned, unconditional love. We're expressing our good wish not because people are a certain way, not dependent on any conditions. It's simply an expression of our own generosity of heart. One of the great lessons for me in this, and it's a part of the practice that we'll come to in a few days, you know, as we start with self and then benefactor and then good friend and then neutral person and difficult person and then we open it to all beings. When I started doing it towards a neutral person, that was a, that was a real turning point in my understanding. When Manindraji, my, my first Dharma teacher, was teaching me this practice, and he said, do it towards a neutral person. Even the very idea of neutral person was, I didn't exactly know what he meant. And then he said, well, you know, why don't you do it to the old gardener who lives in the, the Burmese Vihara where I was staying. And it was quite striking to me because I realized this was a person that I had seen every day for months and I had no relationship with him inside at all. <laughs> you know, he could have been a telephone pole. And that was shocking. It really was. It woke me up to kind of the level of indifference to this vast category of people, close and far away. So then I started doing the metta with him as my object all day long, for days. You know, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you live in safety, may you live with ease, over and over and over again. It was fantastic. He became my love object. And there was such a warm feeling every time I saw him, every time I passed him. And what was amazing to me is that nothing in the situation changed except my own internal state. And so it was this great lesson in the understanding that how we feel is in the end up to us. It's not dependent on other people and how they are. It really depends on what we do within ourselves. Nobody prevents us from being loving.
this is this is a great awakening it's tremendously empowering to realize that how we feel is up to us because so often we go through our lives if not necessarily complaining at least thinking that how we are is being caused by you know our situation and the people around us and and always we're looking outside of our own hearts I had an old girlfriend who had a wonderful line during one of our disagreements she said Stop making me feel aversion. (laughs) That was a good moment. What we can learn from our practice is that how we feel and the capacity for generating loving thought and loving feeling is within ourselves. It's not dependent on external circumstances. And you will begin to see this even more clearly when you begin working with a difficult person, somebody you have ill feeling towards, and see how that can be transformed, that can be transmuted through our own efforts, not through any change in that person, simply through our own practice how that can be transformed into loving feeling. This is the power of metta. No one, no being is outside of its scope. Now there's this wonderful line from a Japanese poem where it says, in the cherry blossom shade there is no such thing as a stranger. And that's the feeling of metta. In the cherry blossom shade, there's no such thing as a stranger. There's no stranger with the feeling of metta, with the feeling of loving kindness. Now, there's something important to realize here, and that is that all of our desires and all of our attachments and all of our wants do not fall away with the first phrase of loving-kindness. It's said that the Bodhisattva, that is the Buddha before his enlightenment, you know, in different lifetimes, spent many years doing just metta, just loving-kindness practice. In one particular life, the story is that he spent seven years doing metta intensively. And so, if after one day you feel that the metta is not quite (laughs) fully expressed in your heart, this is a practice. And we start where we are. But it's very freeing to understand that it is a practice that it actually is something that can be cultivated, it can be developed, as many beings have in the world. And it's with this understanding that 
that often when I've done metta intensively has been a source of great delight. It's really the reflection. Okay, here you have a week. There's nothing else you have to do except spend the week expressing good wishes. <laughs> this is a wonderful thing. You know, there's some great good fortune, great good karma, which has brought us all here together for this purpose. What a nice way to spend a week. <laughs> moment after moment, expressing a good wish. May you be happy, may you be healthy. That is the cultivation, that's the watering, the nurturing of the feeling of metta in our heart. When we learn to distinguish between the feeling of metta and the feeling of desire. And again, they often do come intertwined in a lot of ways in our practice, in our relationships. So it's important to understand the distinction and to begin not only to understand it theoretically, but to experience the distinction directly so we know very clearly and very distinctly for ourselves what the difference is then when there is a genuine feeling of metta which arises, we recognize it very easily. We say, oh yeah, this is really the feeling of metta. There's a purity in this wish. It's not mixed with anything. And as we learn to recognize it more clearly, we gain easier access to it. It's something we can come back to more and more easily because we've recognized it so distinctly. More and more it becomes not something we do, but actually the place we're living from. Now, this is the result of the practice. It becomes our reference point. It becomes our ground. Okay, so this is a near enemy of metta. It's that state which looks like it, which we confuse with it, but is actually different desire. And the Buddha talks about the far enemy of metta. And the far enemy means it's a state which is its exact opposite, which keeps us far away from the feeling. And in this case, it's fairly obvious. The far enemy of metta is ill will, is aversion, is anger, is hatred. All of these states have the effect of hardening the heart. It's a kind of contraction when we're caught in these states when we're identified with ill will or anger or fear or hatred, there's a contraction, contraction of self. And it really solidifies our sense of separation with others, which is just the opposite of metta. When we're feeling metta, there's a strong feeling of connection. Bless spring. I was uh, doing a retreat, a self-retreat with some friends 
and a very beautiful place at Cape Cod. A few of us had rented this house and it was on a cliff overlooking the bay. And there was this beautiful long beach. I mean, the beach was, I don't know, 10, 15 miles long. And we were there in early spring, so it was still quite cold and deserted, you know, because mostly people go to Cape Cod later in the year. So we were there and practicing, and I was doing both Vipassana and some metta, you know, may all beings be happy. And it was wonderful. I mean, it was exquisitely beautiful, you know, and empty and silent and still. And one night I'm meditating, and I hear this really loud sound of vehicles roaring down the beach. I couldn't believe it. It seemed so out of place. Now, what are these cars, what are these vehicles doing on the beach, this quiet, peaceful, pristine place? And then they got, I don't know whether they got stuck or they just stopped. The house was on a little bit of a cliff, so the beach was low, and the, the car stopped right below where we were. And there were people talking and having a good time. And just before, you know, may all beings be happy, may all beings be happy. <laughs> you know, and I was really getting upset and angry at the fact that people could do this. It seemed so incongruous to the environment. It took quite a process, you know, for me to begin to let go of the anger come to some equanimity after a while, and then even to come to some place of metta and loving feeling for these guys having a good time. And I learned, you know, through experience, subsequent experience, that the beach was one of these beaches where that's what people do. You know, they drive their sports vehicles, because it's a fun thing to do, I guess, <laughs> up and down the beach. But it was very interesting for me to feel in that immediate response with the anger, with the ill will, you know, I felt so contracted myself and so separate from these people, there was no feeling of connection, certainly no feeling of warmth. But as I let go of the ill will and let go of the anger, actually to find that the heart can open up and to encompass that, to embrace that too. We can do that even in unpleasant or difficult situations. There's nothing which lies outside the scope of metta. But we need to let go, we need to soften with our own angry responses, because anger is the far enemy of metta. When we're lost in it, when we're caught in it, it closes our heart, contracts it. There's an unusual phenomenon that happens that can happen on a metta retreat. And that is that the more people practice at times, now as you're doing the phrases, as you're generating the loving wish, very often what happens for some people is that it seems like more and more angry feelings start to come. And unless people understand the process that's going on, it's very easy to get discouraged. <laughs> Here we are doing metta and everybody else looks so happy. You know, and we feel just more and more anger, more and more ill-will arising. It's actually part of a purification process. 
And there's a very nice image which describes it. If you have a red-hot piece of metal, you know, that's kind of glowing with the heat, and a drop of cool water just drops onto the metal, what's going to happen? It's going to be that kind of sound. But then you drop another one. If you keep dropping these cool drops of water, at a certain point, the metal cools off. And then you drop a drop of water falls. Nothing happens. It's peaceful. It's still. Very often, each of these phrases, depending on the accumulation inside, each of these phrases can, could be like a drop of cool water on some particular situation, you know, of intensity, of suffering, of anger. And so we drop a phrase, a cool phrase, a meta, and there's an explosion. We do it again and again. Don't be misled by the fact that this is happening. If you can make the space for it, if you can have meta towards that whole happening, there's a very deep and profound cooling out that's taking place. If you want to understand this. So we talked about the quality of metta, the pliability, the spaciousness of heart, the simple good wish, the all-inclusiveness of it. We talked about the near enemy, which is desire and attachment. We talked about the far enemy, is anger or ill will. So the last question I'd like to consider tonight is how we actually practice, how we cultivate this feeling of loving kindness in ourselves. So it actually becomes the place out of which we live. As we do the practice, I found it very helpful to give time to give time to each individual phrase because each phrase of metta even though it's very simple you know may you be happy or may you be healthy each of those phrases is very rich in meaning <coughs> it's like a diamond with many facets and so as we repeat the phrases Allow the time for the fullness of the meaning to emerge. Now it's, I don't know, another image for it sometimes. I think of it as, you know, holding up a flower and giving the attention time for the aroma, for the perfume of the flower to, to waft, to spread. Or if we just, oh, here's the flower. We don't, we don't we don't give the experience time. Each phrase is like that. Each phrase is, fra is fragrant. And so, as you do it, don't rush through the phrases. It's not a question of how fast you say them or how quickly you get through the sequence. Really do one at a time. It's like your effort. Four phrases is too much in terms of understanding right effort here. One phrase. You know, take the time. Really arouse the intention of the wish. May you be happy. 
And just hold that for a moment, connecting it with the person. Because happiness means many things. Happiness means the happiness of sense pleasures, it means the happiness of stillness, of peace, it's emotional happiness, it's the happiness of liberation. All of that is contained within the phrase. May you be healthy. A lot is contained in that. Physical well-being, of strength, of energy, perhaps freedom from pain or discomfort. So let the meaning, let the fullness of the meaning come. May you live in safety. May you be free of danger. Be free of outer dangers. Be free of inner dangers. Of the different defilements of mind. So take care with the expression of the phrases. Because this is where the... the heart of the feeling comes from. It's also helpful to understand that the metta is a concentration practice as well as being the development of the loving feeling. So if you can stay focused on the phrases, even when you're not having some great rush of feeling, it's all happening. The concentration is getting stronger, and the mind and the heart are getting stiller out of which the meta-feeling will come. <coughs> so a reminder again, and this said last night and probably will be said many times, don't assess how you're doing. It's just in each moment. It's like enjoying the opportunity, enjoying the possibility of being here sitting or walking with the opportunity to wish happiness for oneself, for others. One of the hardest things to do, and yet it really is the foundation of metta arising, it's particularly hard to do with oneself, Metta arises when we reflect on the good qualities in people. You know, we're all a package. We're all a package of qualities. We have good qualities and we have qualities that are not so good. Many of us have very critical judgmental minds. And those minds tend to focus on what's wrong. What's wrong with ourselves, what's wrong with others. At one point in my I was on retreat, I was doing a self-retreat here at IMS, and I was sitting in the dining room, pretending to be mindful, and I noticed that my mind had a judgment about every single person who walked into the room. They walked too fast, they walked too slow, they took too much food, they didn't have enough food, I didn't like what they wore. <laughs> it was endless. Metta is, or the cultivation of metta, comes from exactly the opposite tendency. Instead of focusing on what's wrong with ourselves or other people, we want to focus on the good qualities. 
in people, the good qualities in ourselves. It doesn't mean that we're blind to the others, it doesn't mean that we don't see them, but we're not giving them our attention so much. And it's quite amazing. As we focus on the good qualities, the feeling of metta begins to come very spontaneously. Just one little experience of this. Remember one time I was sitting thinking of a friend that I was having quite a lot of difficulty with. And something had happened and I was feeling pretty annoyed and angry. And I'm going on and on in my mind, going over the scenario, until I realized, I'm just sitting here suffering. Now they weren't even aware of what... It doesn't make any sense at all. Why should I be dwelling in all their faults and be feeling miserable myself? And so I just changed channels. It's like, you know, clicking the TV remote onto the meta channel. And it, it was really the image that came to my mind. And I just started thinking of the good qualities of this person, even though they had quite a few bad qualities. <laughs> they had some good ones. <laughs> and it was amazing. It was instant. As soon as I, as soon as I flipped channels, you know, onto the meta channel, be happy. You know, be free of suffering. It all opened up. I felt a lot better. The ill will dissipated. So we can do that. And that's actually what we're practicing. So just a suggestion in closing, part of method towards yourself in doing the practice is being patient. Now this is just the first day. And there's all the difficulties of just first day of a retreat. And in the course of the retreat, all the difficulties will come. You know, the wandering mind and the discomfort and the restlessness and these are all the difficulties that everybody who has done the practice has gone through. So they're part of it. Be patient. If you're really patient and soft with yourself, and just continue with a sense of continuity, with a sense of perseverance, you will find the enormous and the wonderful blessings of this quality of loving-kindness as it grows stronger within us. Generally, people end this week feeling really good. It takes some ups and downs, but be patient because just as you rest in this basic good wish, the basic good will towards yourself, towards others, it's a very softening, heart-opening practice. That's it for just a couple of moments.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.